So I mentioned uh, several weeks ago now that uh, an old friend was uh, the, the man that was here and reported one Sunday about his work in the Czech Republic was back in Krakow, Poland, helping with the PCA relief effort there. And uh, one thing that is not as well known as the fact that there are a lot of people coming out is that there are a lot of people going back in uh, as the war has shifted away from the western part toward the east. People have felt safer and gone back and uh, who knows how long that will last but anyway it's a, a, a situation that's in significant flux over there you might say. So I want to present a sermon today that uh, I developed uh, about a year ago when my oldest grandchild made public profession of faith. And I wrote it for her, in, in a sense, and, and for the congregation where she made that. But this message is not just for those who are making a first-time profession of faith, as I think you will see, but it's really for all of us that confess uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I hope it will be helpful for all of you. It was uh, helpful for me as I developed it and. And let's pray and ask God's help, and then we will uh, read the scripture and look at uh, one particular verse um, today. Lord, uh, we are aware that when your word is uh, read and proclaimed, when the sower goes out to sow, that the devil is waiting to pluck up the word so that it cannot uh, take root and, and grow. And so, Lord, we acknowledge there is a spiritual battle going on just now. In this place. And we pray that the shield of faith will defeat the fiery darts of the devil that he casts, darts of unbelief and doubt, uh, doubt, darts of timidity and failure to grasp the truth that comes in the gospel. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand this holy and inspired word that you've given us, a word without which we would be in the dark. And use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way that you have laid out for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19, uh, I want to read God's word uh, beginning at verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us hold fast with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had better, a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade away, but this is God's word. It will never fade away. It will abide forever and forever. I want to look particularly at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. I want to begin this message by going back in uh, history a little bit uh, to the first great awakening in the United States of America in 1739 to 1742 or thereabouts. And there was a great theological conflict at that time between uh, George Whitfield and uh, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. By the way, if you want more information about that con- controversy, Steve Green will be uh, glad to give it to you after the service today. Right, Steve? Just kidding, brother. Just kidding. All right. So the Whitfields and the Wesleys all were greatly used of God. Uh, but they had serious theological differences. Uh, the Wesleys were Methodist Arminian in their theological orientation. And Whitfield was Presbyterian and Reformed or Calvinistic in his theological orientation. Wesley's uh, stressed human responsibility. Whitfield, you might say, uh, stressed divine sovereignty. That's a little too uh, simplistic, I know, but in a nutshell, that was it. Now, the popular press at the time of of the First Great Awakening, both here and in uh, England, would have known of this conflict. That was a time when, when, you, when you got positive things about ministers in the newspaper, not just negative like you do today. Uh, but there was a very intense conflict between Whitfield on the one hand and the Wesleys on the other, and it would have been known in the public. Very intense conflict. And so they asked Whitfield one time, Reverend Whitfield, do you suppose that you will see the Wesleys in heaven? 
they were baiting him, you know, thinking he would say, no, that theology is too bad. They're, you know, that's what they were trying to get him to say. And he said this. He said, I fear not. He's saying, I fear I will not see them in heaven. For they will be so near the eternal throne and we at such a distance that we shall hardly get sight of them. It's a very good answer, it seems to me, that they'll be so close to the throne and I'll be so far away that we will not be able to see them. An interesting story in its own right, and it tells us a lot, I think, about how we should regard fellow laborers in Christ's vineyard who differ from us theologically. But, and this is why I'm telling you this story, it also expresses how I feel when I think of the people that received the letter to the Hebrews. For I expect them to be so much closer to the eternal throne and I so far away that I shall hardly get sight of them at all. And let me tell you why. I'll tell you who they were a little bit, what they experienced, and then why they received this letter, all of this by way of introduction. In a nutshell, these people are what we call Messianic Jews. They were people of Hebrew ethnicity who had publicly professed, Hebrew ethnicity and religion, who had publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ. You can tell that as you read the entirety of the letter, what they call the internal evidence of who received it. What had these people experienced? Well, if you look down at verse 32 that I read earlier, verse 32 of this chapter 10, you see that they had experienced uh, quite a bit. They had, it says in verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is after they became Christians, after they confessed the faith, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So they've been through sufferings, real sufferings as we will see. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Can you imagine an American Christian saying that? I joyfully accepted the plundering of my property? Why did they do that? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So these are people that have been through a lot. It says in another place that they've had, some of them had been sawn in two and some had been murdered and, and all other sorts of things. It was a costly confession that they made and indeed all confessions of Christ are costly at one time or another in one way or another. So what's their situation now? That's their former days. Verse 32, but recall in former days after you were enlightened, all this stuff had happened. What's their situation now? Well, the feeling you get as you read the book is that in former days they had all this persecution, all this problem, all this affliction, all this suffering, and that had waned. But now a new cycle, a new wave of affliction and persecution is, and suffering are coming, and they are in danger of giving up the faith. It says in chapter 2, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The writer to the Hebrews is worried that they might drift away 
It says in verse, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, that we shall not escape if we neglect such a great salvation. He, chapter 3, verse 12, he's talking about falling away from the living God. And so his concern is that they might fall away, that they have been through it once, and, and now they're in danger of not going through it again and giving up the faith and just becoming nominal if that. They are receiving this letter so that the writer can exhort them and encourage them to remain faithful to Christ in the face of this second wave of persecution that's coming upon them. So to set up verse 23, look at verse 19, and I'll give you the flow of the passage as it comes in, these first, uh, in this first section, and then I want to look at verse 23. In this section, the writer begins in verse 19 and 20, and 21 by reminding them of the gospel, reminding them of the good news. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So in those first two verses, he mentions the blood of Christ and the flesh of Christ, which, of course, we remember in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, right? So he mentions the blood of Christ and the, and the body of Christ and the fact that, that they have confidence because of the ministry of Christ to enter the holy place. What does he mean, the holy places? Well, he means, I think, the holy of holies. We have access to God. You guys have access to God because of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and, he's, and, he, and then he, he really says the same thing in a different way in verse 21 since we have a great high priest over the house of God, a, a high priest who has been an effective high priest, an enduring high priest that didn't have to offer sacrifice for his own sins repeatedly, but who offered sacrifice for those who couldn't sacrifice for themselves, who didn't have a sinless sacrifice to offer. So he reminds them of the gospel first. And, and those are things are true for us as well, right? If you confess Christ today, those things in 19 and 20 and 21 are true for you, right? Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, you can go right into the throne room. You can have an audience with the king. That's what prayer is. And this new and living way is, is, is Jesus. And he is our great high priest. So, so he reminds them of the gospel, and then he exhorts them in three ways. If you'll notice, verse 22 begins with, let us. Verse 23 begins with, let us. Verse 24 begins with, let us. So these, these three exhortations that he offers on the basis of the gospel hope that they have. And verse 22 is, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near to God. Because if you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. That's what James tells us. And that's what they need to draw near to God. So He will draw near to them and empower them to overcome this persecution, to endure, to persevere through this persecution that is about to come upon them. That's His exhortation based on the gospel. Verse 23, the second, let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. That's the one I want to talk about. And then verse 23, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting 
our meeting together. He's talking about fellowship and, and mutual ministry and mutual encouragement of one another and how they can't go through this persecution alone, how they need help. Uh, you've, you've experienced that. You know, you've been in through a, a time of trouble in your life and some friend draws near. They come to see you, to, to, to touch you, to pray with you, to encourage you. They bring you a meal or something of the sort. That's what he's saying. Let us hold fast... Uh, excuse me, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. We need to stir up one another. You need to stir one another up. That's what the writer's telling them. That's what he's telling us. There's, every, there's a time in your life you'll need somebody to stir you up. And there's another time in your life you'll need to be a stirrer of others, right? Yes. That's what we do. You can't live the Christian life alone. I've got another sermon. I hope I get to preach it, but you never know. The new pastor may get here. If you think you can live the Christian life alone, to that extent, you don't know what the Christian life is. Woo! Really? I said that? That's right. If you think you can live the Christian life alone, to that extent, you don't know what the Christian life is. Because you can't. You don't have the ability. You're not made like that. You're not wired like that. Okay. So, let's look at verse 23. All of that to say, let's look at verse 23. Now you know where verse 23 is. Fits. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is our hope? What is our hope? Our hope is the Christian hope, the common hope, the gospel hope. It is the hope of heaven, the hope of salvation. If you study uh, the word hope in the New Testament, here's some of the things you find out. The hope of salvation, the hope of eternal life, which is life with God in heaven which is protection, deliverance from sin and death and enemies. Uh, heaven is a place of purity and perfection and completion and plenty and provision. The Christian hope is a spiritual family that really cares. Without number, a spiritual family that lives in unconditional love. Our hope is of the resurrection of the dead, Acts 23, a hope of righteousness where... In, in Galatians 5, I, 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 you're probably like me. You know, the, the Bible teaches that we have a hope of righteousness, that someday we will be so righteous that we won't even desire to sin. Can you believe that? Can you imagine that? When I look in the mirror and see Alan Carter and think of an Alan Carter that doesn't desire to sin, that stretches my faith, brothers and sisters. And when you look in the mirror, you ought to have the same response, <laughs> right? Can you imagine that? That's the hope of righteousness. That's the hope he's talking about. A hope laid up for them in heaven, Colossians 1 verse 5. And this hope comes by redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit when we have faith in Jesus Christ. And then the redemption is applied as we persevere. Listen to this verse from Matthew 24. The one who endures... To the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. It's not just the one that says yes at a meeting, maybe walks an aisle thinking in the, in, in the way things used to be. It's, it's not just the one who initially says, yeah, I'll follow Jesus. Yeah, I'll sign the card. Yes, I'll say yes to your prayer. But the, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And in this chapter I've read in verse 36, he says, you have need of endurance. Yes, they do. Yes, we do. We have need of endurance. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. 
So what is it to confess this hope? Well, you know what that means in a sense. In Presbyterians say it means to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ for salvation. To rest and rest and receive, rest and upon Jesus, receive and rest upon. Woo! Get it straight, Alan. Receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. That's what it is to confess this hope. It's a matter of head and heart. It's to entrust ourselves to God through Jesus Christ and to express that faith with lip and life and to remain faithful. Friend, is that your hope? Have you confessed that hope? Have you said yes to Jesus Christ and said, with every fiber of my being, with every ounce of my strength, I will seek to follow him, live for him. He's forgiven me. If you've never done that, why not now? No time like the present. And if you have, I'm hoping this passage will tell you and me to persevere. So, it says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession. So, the confession of our hope, I hope I've, I've made clear to you that it's the hope of heaven, and we confessed it. And what does it mean to hold it fast? Well, I've got a picture lesson. I brought a friend of mine along. Um, if you don't like panda bears, don't tell me, because they're just my favorite, okay? So, um, suppose this picture probably happened in this church. It certainly happened the one I pastored in Alabama. Suppose some three-year-old comes in with their friend. And mom and dad are with them. And mom and dad say, as I say hello to the family, now, why don't you let Pastor Allen hold your friend? No. No. Pastor Allen's a nice man. You can trust him with your friend. No. No. Could be with a blankie, you know, too. What is that? It's holding fast, right? I mean, you, there's, every kid has something from which you cannot separate them at some point, right? You remember those days. If you, are you too old that you can't remember those days? For crying out loud, you've gotten really old if you can't remember those days. Get around a kid. He'll show you. Friends, that was the witness of Polycarp. And he said, I can't deny my Savior. This is a witness of John Huss at Constance in Germany. And they burned him at the stake. It was the witness of the Oxford martyrs, Latimer and Ridley, who did light a fire in England that couldn't be put out. The Wigton murders in, martyrs rather in Scotland. That's an interesting story. I'll tell you right quick. So there was two Margarets. I won't give you their last names. You won't remember it anyway. An older lady, about 65, and a younger one that was 18, both named Margaret, both Presbyterians in a sense. And they were, it was illegal to be a Presbyterian. And Presbyterians were killed in those days. And they said, if you'll recant, you can live. And they said, we won't, won't recant. And so the tide was out, and they took them out in the, what we would call the bay, and they put stakes in. And the older Margaret they put farther out 
so the tide would get to her first. And the younger Mart, Margaret, they put closer in so the tide would get to her later. And they said, now the tide is coming. Will you hold fast or will you recant? And the first Margaret is crying encouragements to the second Margaret to remain faithful to what she believed to be true, and she drowned. And the second one remained faithful. She held fast, and she drowned. You can read the story. You, 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 you look up the Wigton martyrs, W-I-G-T-O-W-N martyrs. Not now. Don't pull your phone out now. But do that later. That's holding fast. That's, holding, that's the kind of holding fast the Hebrews had done. Read the whole book. Some of them had been sawn in two. The Bible presents holding fast is very important, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Luke 8, the parable of the sower. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. In this book, Hebrews 3 at verse 6, And we are God's house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Hebrews 3, 14, For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So some of your thinking, I'm trying to anticipate objections, do we hold fast to God? Or does God hold fast to us? And some of you would say, well, what about the song of Keith and Kristen Getty? He will hold me fast. When I f fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And then the refrain, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. And then if you want scripture for that, John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So, who holds whom? Do I hold God or does God hold me? Yes. Yes, both are true. We believe in divine sovereignty and we believe in human responsibility and those truths must be held in their proper biblical tension. Philippians 2, it says, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Be active. You're responsible to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We hold him fast because he holds us fast. And I think it's theologically true to say if you're not holding him fast, what would be your ground for saying, I know he's holding me fast? Thirdly, the text says... Let us hold fast the confession or our hope without wavering. It's an interesting word in the original language, the without wavering or without wandering, without bending to either side. 
without swerving. Plato said, used the word as steadfast. Hold fast to it. What is it to hold fast? It's to hold fast steadfastly. When the ice storm hit last year, all the trees between the sidewalk and the street in our neighborhood were lost. And we had one that before the storm was kind of bent. It wasn't like that. It was like this. And so the ice storm came one day, and it got loaded with ice. And I told Sally the next day, the next morning, I said, you know, I'm worried about that tree because <laughs> uh, it's just bent. Uh, and sure enough, there was a second night of ice, as you will all remember. And it was really bent then, but it was standing up. Except about 9.30 at night, it went, fell all the way across the road. Why am I telling you that story? Well, the tree was bent, so when the storm hit, it couldn't endure. You can make the same point with other New Testament words that fit with the theology of what the writer is developing here. Unswerving is another word that is used. For instance, in Timothy, O Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge, for by it some have for by professing this false knowledge, some have swerved from the faith. And so the point for us is be careful, don't swerve from the faith. Suppose you and I are driving down the road and um, you get distracted a minute, you know, you're messing with your phone or you're fiddling with the radio and you swerve. So you've got two choices. You immediately correct or you say, well, I may be headed to the ditch, but I'm not there yet. No worries. I can correct my direction later. Right? If I'm riding with you, I hope you take the former attitude, right? I'm headed to the ditch. I've got to get this thing straight. I've got to get it back in the lane. The writer's point, the writer to the Hebrews and in Timothy is, don't waver or swerve, but if you do, correct the course of your life as soon as you detect the wavering. If not, you may get your life in the ditch. Wandering is another word that's used in the same way. It's hold fast the profession of your hope without wavering, without swerving, without wandering. It's all interconnected in what's in the New Testament. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. A while back, the... Uh, and I don't know, he still may be lost. I think it was the mayor of Hillsboro, uh, was, uh, had dementia. He wandered off. Now, if you said to him that morning, are you going to wander off and get lost this afternoon? No. 
he wouldn't have said that. If you said to a kid after, how, well, how do kids get separated in big stores from their parents? Sometimes they just run away, but not most often. Most often they get hid behind a rack of clothes or something, or they go around a corner and mother goes around the other corner, and all of a sudden the kid finds mother's not there. They just wander off a step at a time. Matter of fact, I want to write something someday with the title, How Do People Get Away from Jesus Christ? Most people don't bolt and run. Most people just wander a step at a time. They watch something, read something, do something that they shouldn't be doing, and they just wander off. They just swerve into the ditch. They just have a life that's not as straight as it should be, and when the storms of life come, they collapse. How's your life today? You headed to the ditch? Are you worried about whether it's like this or like this? Are you trying to get it right? Are you taking steps that you shouldn't take? We should be as tight with Jesus as the four-year-old with the panda bear. No! Never give him up. Won't let you touch him. Won't let you get between him and me. Mine. Jesus is mine. Lastly, fourth point, why does the writer add the words, for he who promised is faithful? Well, that's pretty obvious, I think. He's trying to encourage them and us. Clearly, he's talking about God when he says at the end of verse 23, for he who promised is faithful. And he's talking about God's side of the divine sovereignty, human responsibility, tension. He wants to encourage them to that faithfulness, steadfastness, holding fast that's possible for them because of God's help. And friends, he wants to do that for you too. What is your confidence it's in God, the faithful God. He's talking about God's promise of faithfulness to be true to His Word and true to His people. A true friend is a faithful friend. He promises to be with us in our trials and our tribulations, to hold us in His strong hands, to be our covenant God and defend us. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. He promises never to leave us or forsake us. He promises to give us grace to help in time of need in Hebrews 4. And so they and we can be encouraged that we are not on our own to hold fast to Him, that God is with us. He will hold us fast. And that is the way we can be confident that we can hold him fast if we strive with every ounce of our being. Suppose someone asks you, this verse 23 talked about this, hold fast the confession of our faith. Suppose someone asks you, have you confessed your faith in Jesus? That's a good question. And uh, I was privileged the day that I preached this verse to my granddaughter, and say that she was professing her face that day. And many of you can profess and answer that affirmatively. 
But what about those who can't? Why not soon or now? You never know. Why not sooner now? So that's one question. Have you confessed your faith in Jesus? Let me ask you another question. Have you confessed your faith in Jesus recently? That's a good question too. Because the biblical picture is we confess initially and we continue confessing and we will confess until our faith becomes sight and we see King Jesus. So I'm challenging me and you and all of us to confess the faith today, tomorrow, the next day, the next. Until the day when faith becomes sight. And then all you got to do is adore. <laughs> then all you have to do is adore Jesus when you see him face to face. Let's pray together. Lord, um, thank you that you came the sinless one and died for us, the sinful ones. And thank you that by your grace, uh, you've stirred us up to confess the faith. Many of us, most of us, I think. I pray that we will hold fast without wavering, um, without tilting, without wandering, firm until the end. Lord, we have need of endurance as they had need of endurance. Our confidence is that you are faithful that you will hold us fast and enable us to hold you fast. And I pray that for all that are within the sound of my voice. In Jesus' name, amen.